you know, the, the topic, the subject this year uh, about increasing our, our meaningful Christian fellowship. Uh, you may have noticed the title of the messages generally includes the word, the, phrase, the two words, one another. And um, I know everybody's using Blue Letter Bible or some other online study resource these days, but if you still have a strong concordance on your shelf, I encourage you to open it up to the word another. And just go down the list, you'll see the vast majority of the references include this phrase, one another. It's uh, This one anothering is not a nice add-on to you know the important things about how we understand God's dealings with us. This one anothering is, in fact, a central, a key evangelistic tool of the church. It is, uh, the, it is an evidence, as we heard last night, a, a profoundly important evidence of the genuineness, authenticity of God's work in our hearts and homes and congregations. To the, to the extent that I don't think I'm overstating it to say that if we're not one anothering in the manner of New Testament injunctions, then we're not really doing Christianity. And, um, and so as we heard last night also, all of this flows in the matter of burden bearing about Christ being the ultimate burden bearer who bears our burdens. And, and bore our burden of sin to the cross, uh, this one anothering is, is, is in general a reflection of Christ's selflessness toward us. His, his sacrificial love, the love that's from everlasting to everlasting. Our love is but a faint reflection of that, but let's don't downplay it to the point of insignificance. Our love is a reflection of that. First John, where he says, we love him because he first loved us. The word him is in italics. The, the, the Greek literally reads, we love because he first loved us. Now, I'm not quibbling with the translation. I agree, we love him because he first loved us. But in a, in a, in a uh, derivative way, we love, if we truly love in that divine, agape, Christ-like way, we love each other because he first loved us. And let me just say, that verse does not suggest simply order of precedence. One came first and another came second. If you notice the word because, there's a very important word in the center of that word. The word is cause. His love causes our love. His love is the driving force behind our love. The love of God constraineth us. And so his love constrains, moves, uh, causes in us a reciprocal love to him and a derivative love to the brotherhood. Let's, if you don't mind, pause for another moment of prayer before we open the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your words. Brother Andy has prayed that thorough furniture into every good work, that, that pure canon of inspired and preserved holy writ. And we pray, Father, that this morning you would open your word to our minds, that you would open our hearts and minds to your word, and that good seed would be sown in good soil, that would bring forth fruit in abundance to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this, uh, this word, hospitality, I mean, it really almost seems like they were scrounging for you know, one extra topic for the, for, the, for the message series this year, and they're like, what else does the Bible say about one another? Oh, hospitality, okay, let's do that. I mean, it almost seems like a lower tier of a subject. You know, of course we should be kind, of course we should be gracious, of course we should invite people to dinner occasionally. After all, they might invite us back to dinner sometime. You know, it, it kind of what goes around comes around. 
What's interesting, of course, is that Jesus actually warns us against this very thing. In Luke chapter 14, he tells us not that it's wrong to invite people who can afford to invite you again, but he says you need to be especially conscious to invite the people who can never do anything for you again. You need to invite the poor. You need to invite the, the off the out, outcast, the off-scouring of the earth. You need to invite the kind of people who Jesus, in that uh, following parable, invited to his wedding feast, invites to his wedding feast. Uh, people who are with utterly without capacity to repay. And by that, I don't just mean the fellows out there on the street. I mean you and me. You have no capacity to repay the graciousness and generosity of God toward you. And so you and I must be willing, not just should be willing, but must be willing and eager to seek out opportunities to minister that kind of gracious love toward others. In our home church, we've been going through uh, the books of Samuel and Kings and um, just recently finished up 2 Samuel where we looked at David as a man after God's own heart. And, um, you know, that's pretty high praise for, for a human being to say this man, so sort of like Abraham is the friend of God. Well, here is a man after God's own heart whom Samuel said the Lord sought out that he would raise him up to be king over Israel in the stead of Saul. And Paul repeats it in the New Testament, the man after God's own heart. What is it about David's heart that reflects the heart of God? Well, I'm sure there are a multitude of answers, but three at least that we found that are direct reflections of the very character and heart of God are that David was uncharacteristically of his time and and station in life. He was a man who was quick to show mercy. He was inclined to mercy. In fact, I can't even count the number of times in the book of 2 Samuel where the impulse of the people around David, even his faithful, loyal men, was off with their head. And the impulse of David was, let's spare him. Let's, let's, uh, let's give him another chance. Let's, let's show mercy. And, and this happened over and over again in David's life. At the same time, David was also zealous for the righteousness of God. He, he was not, it's so easy to fall into one rut or the other to be, to be merciful at the expense of righteousness or to uphold righteousness at the expense of mercy. You know, God doesn't have that problem. Uh, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Ultimately, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung suspended on Calvary, God's justice was meted out on every sin of every one of his children for all of human history without one single sin being swept under the rug. And in the same moment, mercy was displayed to those very sinners, men and women like you and me. So David had a heart of mercy, had a heart zealous for God's righteousness. And, and the, the third point on David's heart was that David was, David's uh, character was, he was willing to sacrifice. And, and this is shown at different points throughout David's life, but particularly in the last chapter, almost a, an addendum to the story of David's kingdom, you read about the plague that came on Israel after David uh, rejected the godly counsel of his, his advisors and rejected the word of God and numbered Israel. Seems like a minor sin. That couldn't possibly be as big a deal as eating a piece of fruit. But, you know, these were both things that God had specifically said don't do and both things that Adam did in the garden and that David did during his reign. And as a consequence for David's sin, judgment came upon the nation of Israel. 
And uh, to David, even in the act of acknowledging that he deserved God's judgment, begged God's mercy. He said, whatever happens, don't let me fall into the hand of men. Let me fall into the hands of God, which is a great place to be, by the way. As fearful as God is, there's no place you want to run to other than the arms of God. Just like a child who, who knows and fears the chastening rod of his father, but also knows because of the relationship he has and because of the love and care he's seen from his parents, he knows there's no one who loves him more than his father. And so even after he receives the chastening rod, he wants to run into the arms of his loving parent. Well, David, uh, at the council of the prophet, takes uh, goes to offer a sacrifice literally at the feet uh, of the angel that was standing over Israel with his sword outstretched, bringing judgment and destruction and death to tens of thousands of people. And as David goes there to offer a sacrifice, he asks the landowner if he could, if it's okay for him to use this spot to offer a sacrifice. And the landowner, who may have had a family member die from this very plague, for all we know, is quick to offer up. He says, yes, use my threshing floor. In fact, here's the wood. Here's the animals. Take everything you need. Go and offer the sacrifice. Let's hurry up and get this show on the road. And David has a very interesting response. He says, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Friends, that's the kind of sacrifice God's heart displays. His love displays. His love is not the kind of love that costs him nothing. In fact, you could say his love cost him everything. It cost him his only begotten son. And, and, and you know, even a, a good man would lay down his life for, uh, even you would lay down your life for a good man. A friend might lay down, a man might lay down his life for the life of his friends. But Romans says that he died for us while we were ungodly, while we were yet sinners. We were rebels shaking our fists in the face of God and God sacrificially and effectually, praise God, loved His own with an everlasting love in this way of, of generosity, of, of giving freely, of giving undeservedly. So let's consider the word hospitality for a moment. It just appears a few times in Scripture. The word is uh, comes from two Greek words. The first one is love. It's the philo kind of love. We'll talk about more in a second. And the second word is xenos or xenon, from which we get the word today is xenophobia. Um, uh, you know, there are various kinds of uh, hatred that display uh, human corruption in the state of our, our hearts outside of grace. Uh, there's, there's racism, there's, there's murderous, uh, rage, there's jealousy, there's all sorts of different things. Xenophobia today and, and throughout history is a fear of the stranger, a fear of the one who's different from me. Well, this philo xenos is exactly the opposite of that. This is a spirit of generosity, of friendship, yea, even of love toward the person who's different from you. Love to the stranger, generosity to the stranger. I jotted down a few Old Testament passages where God reminds uh, his, his people Israel uh, as he's giving them the law and establishing them in a home. He says, you're going to have, the implication is you're going to have a tendency to get to Canaan's land, to build your walls and your fields and your vineyards and, and establish your society and culture. And then you're going to be like, we've arrived. We've got it. I built my house. I've got my place. I've got my kids around me. I've got my olive tree. Everything's going great. And somebody's going to walk into town that you've never seen before, doesn't look like you, doesn't follow the Jewish customs, is unaware of many aspects of the Jewish law, and you're going to you know, sell him some, some goods and send him on his way. And God says, no, you need to treat that person as if they were one of you. 
And here, here are the references for that. Exodus twenty two twenty one: Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus twenty three nine: Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it feels like to be the outcast. You know what it feels like to be the one who doesn't fit in. Even if you've basically, you know, born, been born and lived and grown and raised and ultimately pass away in the same community your entire life, still there are times, there are, there are situations in which you find yourself to be the stranger, the one who doesn't fit in. You know what that feels like. You know how uncomfortable it feels. You could probably even remember maybe some of the most visceral, uh, emotional memories from your childhood are feelings of awkwardness when you entered a new school classroom for the first time or went to a friend's house and there was a whole bunch of family and people there that you didn't know and you were the one who didn't fit in. But your friend said, it's okay. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be beside you. I'm going to make sure that you feel welcome here. You know the heart of a stranger. Leviticus 19.34, But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. These are commandments, period. But, but when he, and when he adds the, 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 the explanation, I am the Lord your God, he's reminding us of his gracious goodness to us and his authority to demand, to, to expect things like this from us. And finally, in Deuteronomy 10, 19, he says, Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. So the first reason we have motivations laid out in Scripture to be hospitable, to be given to hospitality, is that we ourselves are recipients of hospitality. We ourselves have received this kind of undeserved, unexpected, surprising, overflowing generosity. You can count in your own mind, if you allow yourself to reflect on it, times in your life when others have shown this kind of magnanimity toward you. And more importantly, if you are a lover of Jesus Christ, you know that you have received the most gracious uh, demonstration of bountiful hospitality as, as, as God welcomes you into, let's just start with, His planet. This planet you live on, guess who it belongs to? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know, um, scientists were, uh, there was a story about, you know, some scientists who were uh, arguing about the beginning of life and arguing and maybe they could, you know, uh, fire some electrical impulses through a, a carefully balanced uh, mixture of amino acids and, and, and certain chemicals and nutrients and, and create some sort of primitive life. Uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't been done. But even if it gets done one of these days, let me tell you about this. They, they, they were, uh, the, the scientist having a contest with the, with the, the preacher and he said, all right, here, let me show you. I can create life. And so he pulls all this equipment together and, and gets ready to fire it up. And the preacher says, no, 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 no. You don't get to start with all that. Start with nothing. Because that's how this universe, this world, and you came into existence. God spoke and it was done. He took a handful of dirt. Where did he get the dirt? He'd made it. He breathed into that dirt the breath of life. Where did that breath come from? It was the very breath of God. And so you, in him, we live and move and have our being. You are a tenant in God's world. And God is hospitable, not just to his children, but he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. His sun shines on the just and on the unjust. He displays 
hospitality even to the stranger, even to the ultimate rebel who will never have an eternal home with him in everlasting glory. So after the, the pattern of our heavenly father, we're to be, we're to acknowledge, first of all, that we have received hospitality from him. And secondly, we're to display that kind of love toward those around us. But more, more significantly, even than your tenancy in his world, you are a member, child of God, of his kingdom. He's invited you into his banqueting house. He's invited you to a table where you don't belong. The, the wonderful, uh, powerful story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 of Jonathan's surviving son, Mephibosheth. Of course, it was the way of the, the entire earth at that time that when there was a succession in a monarchy, even within the same family, sometimes the ascending king would make sure all of his brothers were dead so that there'd be no one else with a competing claim to the throne. But a decent king might leave his brothers alive. But if he ascended to the throne following another dynasty, he would certainly make sure that all remnants of that previous dynasty were utterly destroyed. And you even see this conflict in the early chapters of Second Samuel as, as there's war and uncertainty and Ishbosheth, uh, son of Saul, has a potential claim to the throne and some followers who are loyal and come around him and, and say, we're going we're gonna to take the throne. Who's this David guy anyway? And, and, and in the midst of all that, there are some murders of Saul's family and descendants. And of course, Saul and Jonathan themselves had died in that last faithful battle with the Philistines. And, 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 and David ascends to the throne and, and one of his first orders of business is, is there anyone left alive of the house of Jonathan to whom I can show mercy for Jonathan's sake? And if you don't see a picture of the gospel there, you've been reading your Bible upside down. I'm telling you, when if we are the recipients of undeserved favor, i.e. mercy, for someone's sake that's not your own. It wasn't that you deserved it. It wasn't that you had potential. This man was lame on both his feet. Uh, one preacher said one time, you know, he said, uh, it, it's a true statement, uh, the, child, uh, the, ch- the child of nature in a state of nature uh, would not trust in Christ even if he could, and he could not trust in Christ even if he would. We are, we are disabled in both our ability and our will. We are fundamentally separated from God in nature. And he takes us lame on both of these feet and brings us to his table, sets us at his table. And it would have been a glorious story if it had ended right there. And David said, Hey, I'm sorry, you know, young son of Jonathan, uh, welcome to my house. Enjoy this meal. Go home and live in peace. But do you know what David actually said? He said, this man is going to eat at my table every day. For the rest of his life. And so with all the mighty men of David, you know, with their clanking armor and, you know, and bloody swords and, and all the noble counselors of David, all the, the prophets and priests that were welcome to, to have an audience with the king, they're all sitting around the table and over there, not in the corner, but right in the middle of the table is Mephibosheth. And surely the first couple of meals, everybody must have looked at each other and said, who's that guy? Who's that guy? What is he doing here? Why does he belong here? Saint. Why do you belong here? Why do you belong in this house today? Why do you belong in God's kingdom, in God's favor at all? The answer is you don't, except it be for the sake of another, the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus even more intimately displays in the John 13 setting, Brother Zach uh, read from extensively last night, as Jesus, the night before he's betrayed, 
the night of his betrayal, uh, administered the, the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper with his disciples and then knelt down to wash their feet and gave that, that, uh, that noble command, the new command, as I have loved you, so also ought ye to love one another. That intimacy of, of the, the, the welcoming atmosphere of the local church. Because let's just be clear about this. I think we all know it, but the church didn't start on Pentecost. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, the sense of the verb is, I will build up my church. I will increase my church. I will grow my church. The first pastor of the first church was Jesus. Jesus built that church from the raw materials prepared for him by John the Baptist and then turbocharged that baptism so that it would replicate itself across the ages down to this good time And in that upper room, in the solitude, the silence, the still and calm before the storm of Jesus' betrayal and brutalization and crucifixion and the horror that befell all Jerusalem, three hours of darkness, dead men walking around, temple veil rent in twain, in the moment of peace before that, Jesus welcomed men and he knelt before them and washed their feet. Now, feet washing is a biblical Custom, a, a periodic custom, a, a cultural custom, to be sure. When men wear sandals and they walk on dusty roads, they need to wash their feet. But even in the Old Testament, even a good host would bring you a basin of water to wash your own feet. It was a job that was probably, in most situations, even beneath a servant's station, to wash someone else's feet. But Jesus said, no, this is my job, because I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And so you, dear brothers, are recipients of God's hospitality, and therefore it is required that you and I be men of hospitality. There are a number of ministers of the gospel here this morning. Let us go first to lay a burden on your shoulders. I'm going to be a burden creator this morning. Um, But I'll uh, let God actually take the credit for this because it's a burden He places on us. Let's look at Timothy and Titus at the qualifications of the office of a bishop or elder. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a true saying of a man desire the office of a bishop. He desireth a good work. A bishop then kind of sort of maybe should be. I'm reading from a different translation. All right, let's read it for real. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And this is kind of like when you go to a wedding and you hear the wedding vows and you silently reflect on your own commitment to your bride and you realize how far short you've fallen, but you realize how noble and true and pure and, and binding that call is on you. And you reaffirm in your heart your vows to your wife as you sit there. Brethren, minister brethren, I want you as we consider these words, not to just think about how, how you've fallen short, but to think about how you're going to live up to these standards because you are the example to the flock and example to the flock, Paul says. And, and in this list of things, in, in these list of requirements, things you must be is included the phrase given to hospitality. You're the kind of person who invites strangers to your table. Titus chapter 1. 
A bishop, verse 7, must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. In the list of these qualifications, these requirements, is the phrase, a lover of hospitality. Someone who loves being generous to people who don't deserve it. Someone who is given to the idea of stepping outside of his own comfort zone. You know, it, you go to work, perhaps, you, you, you know, go through your daily chores, you, you, you know, run errands, you go to Ace Hardware, you come home after a long, hard day, and, and your home is your sanctum, your home is your castle. It's where you hope for a little peace and quiet. It's where you hope to be able to take your shoes off, put your feet up, uh, you know, enjoy a meal with your family, enjoy some downtime, some rejuvenation, some recuperation. In that very place of your greatest comfort, he says you need to make yourself, be willing to make yourself a little bit uncomfortable. You need to be willing to invite someone else, even the stranger, to, to into that inner sanctum, into to the king's table, through the palace gates, to your dining room table, and perhaps even to a bed in your home. And of course, hospitality is not limited to providing the services of a bed and breakfast. Hospitality is more about the spirit of what you're doing than it is about just the outward manifestations of that. Certainly, as we heard last night, love is an action, a commitment to certain, you know, to, to, to visible, tangible expressions and evidences of its reality. But the evidences without the reality are nothing. And the so-called reality without the evidences are highly questionable. But if we are truly lovers of God, then we are going to be uh, men of, of such generous hearts. Let's look now in Romans chapter 12 and get the rest of you guys on the hook. Romans chapter 12, we're going to realize that this command to hospitality is to all the saints of God. It is to the household of faith in every age. This is a passage where Paul is outlining, first of all, the reasonableness, the, the, the thoughtfulness, the intentionality, the proportionality, certainly, of our presenting our whole lives as a sacrifice to God. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And, and as demonstrations or details about what that looks like to present yourself, your life, your body as a living sacrifice to God, he goes through this catalog of spiritual gifts and acknowledges in verse 6 that we have gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to each one of us. Everybody doesn't have the same gift and everybody can't do all the same things. But to the extent you have received a gift, your job as a steward of this gift, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You know, we, 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 uh, we like it if our, you know, person in charge of our bank account or our, our retirement funds or something happens to be really good at investing in Bitcoin or Amazon at just the right time. Uh, those people are few and far between because they're also the ones who invest in them at just the wrong time. Um, but you know, you'd like to see some returns on your investment, but after you go through a few recessions and see the ups and downs of the economy, like the man of 50 some years, uh, myself have seen then, or, or those of you who've been around even longer, you realize that return on your capital is not nearly as important as the return of your capital. You would just <laughs> like to make sure that it's still there. 
And, um, and in order to achieve that, you need someone in charge of that responsibility who is first and foremost a faithful man. And God, interestingly, does not say it's required of you that you be found successful. He doesn't say you should compare yourselves among yourselves. In fact, he, he warns against that very spirit. He doesn't say, has your church grown as much as your brother pastor's church? He doesn't say, have your kids turned out as well as somebody else's kids? He doesn't say, have you done all the, uh, you know, done the things that expended your time in a way and spended your money and your resources in a way that yields mountains of visible fruit in comparison to those around you? No, what he says is, I require in stewards that a man be found faithful. In other words, don't be a Bernie Madoff. Don't be the kind of guy who takes other people's gifts and squanders them on himself. And friends, that is a real and a true challenge and need in the church of God. Because God has richly blessed us, even in temporal and material ways. The poorest person in America is one of the richest people in the world. And you are so situated that you have at your disposal, even as a young person, you have tremendous gifts at your disposal. And, And the question is, are you spending those gifts on yourself? Are you just all about enriching yourself, growing your comfort, growing your security, taking care of that circle of people that are closest to you, making sure their lives turn out well. It's a fine thing for a father to want his children to, to, to reach greater heights of success than he himself has reached and to support and encourage them in that. But that's, that almost, that is a merely, can be a merely natural, uh, reflection of love. We're talking about a divine love that is willing to sacrifice for someone who doesn't deserve it, has no entitlement to it, no reason to have any expectation of it, and you do this because you are being a good steward of the gifts God has entrusted to you. So come down to verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. Let love be without dissimulation. In other words, sincere, clean, pure, not not um, pharisaical or uh, pretended or um, hypocritical. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, We heard this verse last night. Be kindly affectioned one to another. This is the one anothering within the household of faith. With brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. That's a tall order. Even among the brotherhood, it's a tall order. Then he says, not slothful in busyness, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, like the early church did, to the extent of liquidating what today would be hundreds of thousands of dollars of assets and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet and saying, use this as it's needed in God's kingdom. Distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. So this is something that is a a claim God has placed on all of us. You owe it to me, he says, to be generous hearted. to be. And here the word given has this idea of chasing it down pursuing it. You are, you are, you are hunting for opportunities. You're not just like, well, if the door knocks, I'll, I'll, you know, put my Glock in my waistband and, and, uh, you know, go look through the peephole. And, and if all the circumstances seem okay, I might grudgingly let somebody in and give me 20 bucks for gas. You're not just going to respond to the situation. You're saying, Lord, I am looking, I'm praying this day for an opportunity to demonstrate your love by the way that I interact with the world around me. I want to be given to hospitality. Certainly it's true, Galatians 6.10, that we're to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And even within the household of faith, there are some who are stranger than others. Can we just agree on that? 
Um, yeah, there are some, you've got your little circle, your clique, your people you have things in common with, the people you share similar interests and, and avocations with. And to those people, it's more natural to say, hey, come over for dinner. Hey, come over for a game night. Hey, let's spend some time together. But what about that person who is quite a bit different from you? That's one of the marvelous things about the kingdom of God. It includes a whole bunch of Mephibosheths. It includes a whole bunch of people who you look at them and you're like, you really don't belong at this table. But the funny thing is they're looking back at you and they're like, what in the world is he doing here? We, none of us, none of us belong at this table. And so make a conscious effort at your times of church fellowship. I want to explicitly challenge you to this. Make a conscious effort at your times of church fellowship tomorrow not to sit at the same table you always sit at. Not to sit next to the same people that you usually sit beside. Go find that person who's much older or much younger than you, that person whom you know very little about. That person, if you're in a large congregation where you might even have trouble remembering their name sometimes or their circumstances, go and sit with that person. Demonstrate hospitality, doing good to all men, especially they that are the household of faith. Hebrews 13 verse 2 um, sets forth another motivation for this. Um, we're to be hospitable because we are the recipients of great, generous hospitality. We talked about God's hospitality. Let me just quickly uh, acknowledge, it would be wrong of me not to, that this church, Ripley Primitive Baptist Church, and the households in this church have been models of hospitality for decades. Uh, my childhood would not have been, my upbringing in the kingdom of God would not have been the same without churches like Grace Chapel and Ripley, where men as uh, secondary father figures to me, to just put it bluntly, uh, came into my life, poured themselves into my life, welcomed me to their table. I was the um, one oldest student in a one-room schoolhouse at Grace Christian School up in the backyard of Grace Chapel. And you better be sure on all my college applications, I made sure to note that I was the valedictorian of my graduating class. <laughs> <clears throat> There was uh, there was one college that uh, had the foresight to put class rank out of how many, and of course I wrote one out of one, and uh, and and they sent back the application with a question mark. But um, yeah, so 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 it was a little bit of a struggle. Even we had Jimmy Barber, Zach Guest, Judy Guest, multitudes of other parents and church members lovingly, sacrificially pouring their hearts into those children in that schoolhouse. But it's hard to provide a, a proper high school lab experience when you've only got one student in the program. Uh, Brother Mike Strevel and the Ripley Christian School down here had a multitude of high school students, a huge multitude, like five maybe. And, uh, and, and they invited me to come down here and do labs with them. And so Robert Green, who drove every single day an hour and a half to work in Memphis, would pick me up, I think on a Wednesday. I was 15. I just got my driver's permit. He would put me behind the wheel of his car driving out of Memphis, Tennessee. And I would be like, wow, I'm sitting behind the wheel of a car. And he was sitting over there saying, wow, I get a chance to take a, bre a break. And uh, and I would drive him back. And I remember him telling me, you've got to dim your bright lights when you come over this hill. After I blinded several drivers, and he said, somebody's going to chuck a brick through our window if you don't start dimming your bright lights. And he would bring me down here and multitudes of families in this church, especially those who had boys around my own age, the Strevel household, the Formsma household, the Wallace household, they all invited me in as if I was one of theirs. I slept in a bed in their home. I ate breakfast at their table. I came to school here the next morning, dissected a pig. There's a whole separate set of stories about that. That's illustrations for another sermon. But, uh, but, but, but the, the households, the families, and the church itself provided such generous hospitality to me that it is not an overstatement to say I would not be the same person today without the generosity of God's saints. 
So you are to be generous because you have received generosity. Hebrews 13.2 gives us another motivation. Let's read verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. It's the same word to demonstrate this friendship or this philo kind of love to strangers, people who are unlike you. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And you know, when you look back in your life and you're like, well, when did that happen? I'm not sure that I've actually ever entertained an angel. You forgot the last word. Unawares. The whole point is you don't know. You don't know whether this person is, uh, you know, a rebel against the cause of God in Christ who's going to die in his sins or whether this is somebody sent from heaven specifically to bless you. The incredible thing about doing, taking God at his word and obeying his commandments, there's not always an explicit, uh, consequential blessing tied to every commandment God gives. But the incredible thing is that he, he, he loves a faithful, cheerful giver. He loves and delights to bestow additional mercies on those who are walking in the path or striving to walk in the path of Jesus' footsteps. And he said, yes, sometimes those people that come that cross your path may in fact be an angel. I can remember a a man who popped into our church in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, He was there one time. He sat in the front pew. He's the best dressed person in the house, three-piece suit, cufflinks, uh, and uh, you know a tie stud right below his perfectly tied knot. He was an African American and we were all not. And, um, and, you know, we felt a little awkward that he was sitting there. Surely he felt a little awkward sitting there. And, uh, but we went, I think he actually happened into the wrong church is what happened, but he was there and he didn't leave. He just stayed for the service. And after it was over, he handed me a hundred dollar bill and he said, God is going to use you in his kingdom. For all I know, friends, that may have been an angel. And you know, in fact, angel means, uh, you know, a messenger of God. And, and it's, it's not at all beyond the, the scope of the word and the meaning of this text. It doesn't have to be a truly supernatural being that comes in a physical form into your home. It could be God sent that person there for you. You needed a word of conviction. You needed a word of encouragement. You needed a positive example. You needed somebody to lavish uh, uh, some special love on your household that was missing. And, and, and he says, there are blessings, unexpected, unidentified, unspecified blessings that can and will come to you as you demonstrate hospitality. It happened back to back in Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19 when Abraham first entertained two angels as strangers unawares and and God, and they revealed some tremendous blessings of God including the promise of the son that Sarah would bear and then and then uh went into Sodom probably those same two angels and uh and Lot for all of his flaws just Lot righteous Lot invited these men into his home and protected them to the, to the extent of being willing to lay down his own family's well-being for their protection and care. These were two men who literally entertained angels unawares. And there are multitudes of examples throughout the Old and New Testaments of people similarly being willing to demonstrate this Christ-like hospitality. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and we'll wrap up here as our final text. 1 Peter chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 8. Above all things have fervent charity. So let's talk about these different words for love for a moment. I don't think this is new to many of you, but, but let's just do a refresher. So in the Greek, there are three primary words for love. There's agape, there's philo, and there's eros. Um, a simple way to remember the distinction, and this isn't original with me. I forget where I first read or heard it, but it's a great little thing to hang on to. Eros is the love that takes. It's the word from which we get our word erotic. And guess what? That word doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Uh, that is not a part of a Christian's life. 
to be like so enamored, infatuated with somebody that you just got to have it and or, or infatuated with what somebody has. And so you're consumed with envy and jealousy. No, that eros is a love that purely takes. Agape is that perfect expression of love that is a sacrificial devotion of the of one's own interests in the interest of another. But that's a lot of words. So let's just call it the love that gives. So you've got a love that takes. You've got a love like God's that gives. And by the way, that's not a a special Holy Spirit, holy kind of word, because in John chapter 3, we learn that there are men who love darkness rather than light. And guess what? That's agape love. They are willing. There are men, and you know it if you've lived in this world a long time, you know that there is something in the human nature that is willing to sacrifice my own health, my own well-being, my own my, my paycheck that I'm supposed to bring home for my, my wife and kids. I'm willing to sacrifice everything in the pursuit of something unholy outside a state of grace. So that agape love is a sacrificial love poured out in the interest of another. Love that gives, the love that takes. Philo is the love that gives and takes. It's a love of mutuality. It's a love of friendship. I can remember my mother sitting through uh, sermons at at Grace Chapel uh, where they talked at one point about the way that older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. And I guess it was Brother Zach. I was I was away from home at that time, but she related the sermon to me. He said, this is the word philo. He said, "You, you need to have a healthy admiration for your husband. You need to be a friend to your husband. Now, husbands, the kind of love God enjoins you to is agape love. You need to be, be willing to lay down your life for your wife, which includes being willing to take out the trash, but it's much more than that. You need to be willing in your life, throughout your life, to lay down your life for the, the, the bride of your youth. And you also need to be willing to, to die, to literally give your life as the Son of God gave His life in the perfect expression of agape love. And my mother left church that day with a sigh of relief. She said, that agape love is a tall order, but I think I can love David like that philo love. I can admire him. I can respect him. I can be a friend to him. I can be a supporter to him. There's nothing wrong with this kind of love. It is not the fullest expression of divine love, but it is a noble love. It's the sort of love that Jonathan and David had for each other, the love of mutual commitment and friendship. And he says here in verse 8, have fervent charity. So as church members, we are all called to agape. That's, of course, the agape love among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And then he says, verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. So this is the text that I point to to say that showing love to a stranger also means showing love to the stranger ones in your own congregation. It means that that this this strangerly love this strangerly friendship or kindness or generosity, he says, do it one to another. So it's not either or. It's not like you you show philo love to the people outside the church and agape love to the people inside the church. No, you're to show agape love. That's a high calling. But he says one of the outworkings of this is just to be a kind, generous person and seek opportunities, pursue, uh, be given to hospitality. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Uh, Thayer says that grudging here means a secret displeasure that may not necessarily come to the surface. Does that feel familiar at all? <laughs> you're, 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 su- you're such a good, polite Southerner. There's no way you're going to make somebody deliberately feel like you've been inconvenienced that they're in your home. But you're thinking, oh, do we really have to do this? Oh, 
I told Brother Lewis to only use my house to host men from the men's meeting as a last resort if there were no other options. And here he called me the night before and said, we're sending eight men to your house. (laughs) Use hospitality without grudging. Do it as, as if you're looking for what God is doing. You know, we're, we're learning at our church too that um, the, way, the way to respond to adversity or unexpected circumstances in life is not with despair, not throwing up your hands, not wringing your hands, not being bitter, not being angry, not being resentful, but rather it's to ask yourself, hmm, this is an interesting situation. I wonder what God might be doing here and I wonder what I'm supposed to be doing here. If you approach life with that formula, you're going you're gonna to get some good answers and, and, and so when the stranger comes into your home, even the stranger brother comes into your home, you're going to be looking for the opportunity. What is God doing here? And so I'm going to do more than just set out a plate of snacks or, or provide a, a well-made bed for them. I'm going to try to engage them. I'm going to try to talk with them. I'm going to try to share with them from my heart. And you know what? They're probably going to share with me from their heart as well. And God is going to bless me sometimes far above whatever blessing I thought I might be able to give that other person. I'll steal one of Brother Zach's stories years ago when they were poorer than the guy that was poorer than Job's turkey. They were, I think, on that time at government cheese, on government cheese. We had, um, uh, we, we had a contest at work one time where we were comparing our poverty-stricken childhoods. And somebody said, we were on government assistance. And somebody else said, yeah, we lived off government cheese. And I said, that's nothing. We had to borrow government cheese. <clears throat> and they said, they said, okay, you, you won. Um, but at a time when, when being hospitable would come at a great personal cost to them, and they were raising an ever-growing household, and there was some particular weekend or evening when, when most of the children were away somewhere, and, and they were just going to take the opportunity for a special, I believe it was an anniversary dinner, and they were prepared to go out and, and celebrate and have a wonderful time together, enjoying God's blessings on their marriage and home, and they got a phone call from a barely known preacher from out of town who was passing through and said, my plans have changed. I need a place to stay. Would you guys mind if I stopped by? And you know what they did? They turned their anniversary dinner into a table for three in their dining room. They didn't go out to get that fancy dinner after all. They sat there and made a fancy dinner at home. And they sat around the table and told stories of the kingdom of God, rejoiced in each other's company. And when the man got up to leave, as Sister Judy was clearing the plates, I believe she found a hundred dollar bill under his plate. They, he, he knew that it was an act of sacrifice for them and he wanted to acknowledge that by some reciprocal generosity. But you know, they received a blessing that was much more than the hundred dollars. They received a blessing that they had honored the Lord, which should be our ultimate motivation in everything we do. We should be hospitable, but be given to hospitality because we have been recipients of hospitality. We should be given to hospitality because we may thereby entertain angels unawares and receive an unexpected blessing ourselves in the experience. But friends, most of all, we should show hospitality because it honors the Lord God who made us and saved us. It is a faint, but a true and genuine and meaningful reflection of His hospitality toward us and to all the inhabitants of earth whom he lets live under his sunshine and his reign on his good earth. And because of his goodness and gracious to us, we glorify his name when we reflect that in small ways in our own life. Friends, let's rekindle the habit of hospitality. 
When I was a young man, I would hear stories about when other people were young who were older than me, how everybody would sleep in everybody's home. How, you know, to go to a church meeting and somebody might open their barn because there weren't enough beds and men would be stacked like cordwood on the bed of, of straw in the loft of the barn up there sleeping to get ready for the meeting the next day. And the, and the matron of the home would come out with a giant pot of stew and if more people had showed up than she expected, she just added water to the stew and kept stirring. And, and, and you just do what you can do. God doesn't ever require of you what you cannot do, but he does enable you beyond your expectations of your own ability to be a blessing to others and to show the love of God in this way. May God bless you.